the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If I were to tell you that I am giving the greatest accolade I can, what would I say about a person? 90% of you are now saying to your radios or your iPads or phone, courageous. And that is correct. This woman has courage. There are not enough of her, but courageous people do a lot of good. Her name is Barry Weiss. She was a columnist for the New York Times. She left the New York Times, which we will talk about. She now writes for major publications as well as her own website on Substack. Common Sense with Barry Weiss. Barry is B-A-R-I. And it's at barryweiss.substack.com. Her latest article, I don't know if it's her latest, but a very recent article in the Great City Journal has, I believe, gone viral. I certainly hope it has. The Miseducation of America's Elites. I read every word. And we'll talk about that. The subtitle is Affluent Parents Terrified of Running Afoul of the New Orthodoxy in Their Children's Private Schools, Organized in Secret. Imagine that, my friends. Parents needing to organize in secret in the United States of America. All right, Barry Weiss, that might have been the longest introduction I ever gave a guest. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dennis. And I have to say that I grew up in a family where your book with uh, Rabbi Joseph Shalishkin, The Nine Questions People Ask About Judaism, was stacked very high on my dad's desk. And anyone who ever expressed interest in deepening their connection to Judaism or converting was, was handed a copy at Shabbat dinner. So you probably owe him some kind of royalty check. He told me to mention that. I probably do, actually, now that you mention it. I'm very touched by that. I thank you. So there's a lot to talk about. Uh, How did you meet these parents? Let me explain for a moment. You you live where? We're living this year in L.A. We were kind of... Oh, uh, I didn't know you are living in L.A. Oh. COVID nomads. Yes. You should have come in. in you you should have come into the studio. Oh, I'd love to. Oh well. At another point. Yeah. But had yes, I had I known LA. you lived in L.A., I would have. Uh, I thought I thought you lived in New York for some reason. No, no, no. I I have been in New York for 15 years, but my fiance uh, Nellie used COVID as an excuse to take me to her native California, and I've really been enjoying it. I have to say. By the way, uh, Nellie. When when I was told New York the New York Times would write a feature piece on PragerU, uh, my assumption was, given the piece that they wrote on me when I conducted an orchestra here in L.A., that it would be somewhat of a hit job. And while it still was the New York Times, uh, your fiancé did not write a hit piece. So I just want you well, to I know. Think she'll, she'll, she'll be glad to hear that. I, I think she's, she's working in the other room, but uh, thank you. Yeah. That, that, uh, 
that that was important for me to mention to you. Okay, Thank you. so let's go to this article to begin with. No, you know what? I hate doing this, and I rarely do it. I want to first ask you, why did you leave the New York Times? I mean, I think I spelled it out pretty clearly in my resignation letter. Um, But really the reason I left the New York Times is that all of the reasons that I went into journalism um, to be able to pursue my curiosity, to tell the truth, even if it was inconvenient, um, to talk to people that I disagreed with, um, and to do that in an atmosphere free of intimidation was no longer possible for me. Um, And I had a hard choice to make, maybe a choice that some people listening to this are facing in their own lives. I certainly hear from a lot of, let's call them closeted people inside ostensibly liberal institutions right now. And the choice was basically, you know, sit on my hands, avoid an ever-increasing number of topics that are considered third rail, um, but cling on to, you know, maybe not in your world, Dennis, but in mine, you know, the incredible prestige that comes from telling someone you work at the New York Times. You know, my grandparents were subscribed to the New York Times for more than 60 years. And I remember so clearly when I FaceTimed them to tell them that, oh, my God, I got this job. Can you believe it? And they were crying. And, like, that was the kind of response that, at least in the kind of blue world that I tend to live in, I would get. And also, let's be honest, love it or hate it, it's the most important newspaper in the world still with the greatest amount of reach. And knowing you can not just write your own articles, but in my case, I was in, you know, a commissioning editor. So getting people into the New York Times, first-time writers, um, independent-minded people, people that would not otherwise think of the New York Times as a place that they would have the opportunity to publish, like, that made me high. That was the greatest thing ever. And... So I could have stayed and kind of clung on to all of that, um, or I could leave and kind of live up to the principles that I claim to, that I espouse. And when I look at what those principles are, there was kind of no other choice but to walk out the door and in walking out the door to pursue the kind of work that I came there in the first place to do. I will say also that you know, people fixate on the New York Times for, for lots of understandable reasons. But the story of the ideological transformation of the New York Times is a much, much, much bigger story um, that the New York Times is only kind of one instance, one data point. And that is the story of ideological succession. It's the story of how liberal institutions have been upended, have been rotted out, by a deeply illiberal ideology that comes cloaked in the language of progress and social justice. And that, I think, is one of the great undertold stories of our moment. Um, and it's one of the stories that I hope I'm delivering for my readers in my newsletter. I'm quiet because I'm assimilating all of what you said. The My listeners know how true what you said is. The New York Times is not a liberal newspaper. It is a left-wing newspaper. And I have 
to the consternation of many conservatives, drawn a huge distinction between liberalism and leftism. However, and I'd like you to react to this, liberals, and this is a challenge to you perhaps, Mm -hmm. liberals are not leftists. I, I wrote a piece, my column last week or two weeks ago was 32 questions to ask people to determine if they're a liberal or a leftist. Mm-hmm. And first, the, the obvious, the big example is race is unimportant is the essence of liberal views on race. Race is important is the essence of left-wing views on race. They're literally antithetical. Yet... On every issue, every moral issue virtually, left and liberal are uh, in opposition, and yet liberals vote for the left. In the largest single instance of suicide that I am aware of as one who has studied history all of my life, how do you react to that? There's a lot there to react to. I would say that, you know, me being on this show is a good test of whether or not I'm a leftist or a liberal in my own instance, because, you know, one of the things, frankly, I mentioned my dad at the top of the show, but one of the things that I used to argue with my dad about was your stance on gay marriage. Um, And I was deeply disturbed by it, even as I admired your writings on Judaism, your writings on any number of topics. I feel right now that there needs to be a kind of laying down of arms over some old fights that might have divided someone like me and someone like you, um, and a kind of alliance that needs to be built between what I think of as liberal liberals and conservative liberals. Because in the end of the day, if you and I both believe that our common humanity is more important than the lane that we are born into, if you and I both believe that we need to be fighting for a vision of healthy American identity. You are absolutely right. There are so many other huge issues that connect conservatives and liberals. So go ahead. Yeah, I was simply going to say that, you know, there are any number of topics that you and I could have a debate on for many hours and I'm sure come to some kind of stalemate. But I feel very strongly that the fight of the moment and the fight that allows people like me and you to have those disagreements and still, you know, have a drink at the end of the day is liberalism, is the fight for liberalism. You have to ask yourself, like, what are real conservatives trying to conserve? They're trying to conserve liberalism. And if you think, you know, whatever, whoever party you vote for, like, if you think political violence is wrong, if you think that mob justice is wrong, if you think that, you know, the presumption of innocence is fundamental to justice, if you think that whether or not you believe in God, that everyone is created in the image of God or created equally and therefore entitled to equality under the law, you know, if you're skeptical of the power of a company like Amazon, even when it's clamping down on people whose ideas you might despise. Well, congratulations, like we're on the same team. And I just believe that in this moment, and this was the first newsletter that I wrote, was called The Great Unraveling. And it was about, 
you know, it was based in a meeting that I had at Princeton with some dissident professors, including Robbie George. Going back to gay marriage, Robbie George, one of the most articulate, outspoken opponents, not from a Jewish perspective, but from a Catholic perspective of gay marriage. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I'd be sitting with Robbie George thinking about how we could collaborate on fighting illiberalism, which obviously comes from the right, of course, but is also coming from the left. And, um, you know, that's kind of where I'm, that's, that's the place that I'm standing in right now. And it's a place I maybe couldn't have imagined even 10 years ago. I'm sure, I'm sure you couldn't, right. I'm sure you couldn't have imagined. I think we're just, I think we're living through a very significant realignment and that the, the things that allowed for all of the disagreements to happen without us killing each other is the thing that right now is under threat and needs to be protected. Right. So do you think I've overstated it when I say that liberals voting left is a, a case of mass suicide? I don't think it's a case of mass suicide to vote for someone like Max Rose in Staten Island or Richie Torres in the Bronx. And I think there's any number of flavors within the Democratic Party. You know, I wouldn't collapse it all into, you know, it's just, I, I don't know what you would say, AOC, the squad. Uh, yes, I but, think it is just yeah. that. I think they're irrelevant because they vote with AOC. I don't care what okay. they personally believe. They're irrelevant. The people you just mentioned, yeah. I speak about politics for a living and never heard of. That's not a good sign. No, it's not a good sign. <laughs> not a good sign at all. Okay. So, so, uh, or, you know, what what is our senator from West Virginia? Yeah, Joe Manchin. Manchin? He's a great perfect example. There he is in the state, 60-something percent uh, uh, conservative, and gets elected and votes left-wing. So it's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. A Democrat is a Democrat. At this time, the the liberal Democrat has been, Chuck Schumer was was a, a liberal. He's now a leftist. They're, they're all indistinguishable. So I, I, I once again restate, liberals vote suicidally. They think I'm the enemy much more than they think AOC is the enemy. That's sick. I'm not sure that, well, I guess. I'm wondering if most liberals think you're the enemy. I'm not sure most liberals know who you are in the same way you don't know Max Rose is, to be honest with you. And I guess... By the way, if most liberals don't know who I am, that proves something else. The staggering bubble in which they live. PragerU has over a billion views a year. I have millions of listeners. I had the number one selling book on Amazon uh, when it came out, and it was a Bible commentary, no less. Excuse me, number two book on Amazon, number one on on the Wall Street Journal. If they don't know who I am, it it says nothing about me. It shows you the bubble. They they never heard of uh, of Tom Sowell. They never heard of Larry Elder. I utterly and completely agree with you. And if you want to see the divide between, you know, those two things, look at the Amazon bestseller list and look at the New York Times bestseller list. They sometimes have almost no books in common. That's right. I guess what I would say to you is, is the goal to shame people or is the goal to convince people? I I think it's a strategic question of 
whether you want to say to people who are sort of in the politically homeless liminal space between Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow, if you want to say to them, you're committing political suicide, you're idiots, and come over here and agree with me, I'm not sure that's a winning message. It probably isn't, but I, uh, I, I will not, I cannot, and we all have natures. My nature is yeah. not to patronize people. Most of my relatives vote Democrat. These, every one to a person is a wonderful, kind, honorable person. And when it comes to politics, they are fools, naive <laughs> fools. And I love them. Human beings are complex. By the way, uh, my niece is, is, a, uh, is a lesbian and she is married to a woman. Well, let me get to the gay issue for a moment. I just want to tell you for the record that uh, I opposed on religious grounds using the word marriage. I have I never had an issue with uh, partners or I, I know this is quaint sounding to you and that's fine. I, I don't have an issue. I just, <laughs> but I do want you to know the following. Uh, first, uh, my, my wife and I are godparents to a gay, to gay men's uh, sons. In other words, should they die... They have entrusted the moral upbringing of their children to my wife and me, though they know we are opposed to same-sex marriage and they are married because they know that we revere them, we revere their children. The same with my niece, who was married to a woman. We love them. They love us. The, the fact that one opposes same-sex marriage on religious grounds does not make one a homophobe. Uh, this it, it makes one opposed to the redefinition of marriage. And by the way, one other thing about it. When I testified, I didn't even remember this. Some left-wing place cited me uh, as saying this, and they were right. I said, this will lead to the denial of gender or sex differences. Because once you say gender doesn't matter, well, then gender doesn't matter. And I was right. I was 100% right. Same-sex marriage led to the death of gender because its fundamental argument was gender doesn't matter. And now we're seeing the consequences of gender doesn't matter. There were no boys and girls. Go ahead. I I was going to say, and then I would love to also talk about, because I I don't want to be a sore winner. It's like, the gays won the argument on this one. Correct. I don't uh, think I don't think that the fundamental argument was gender doesn't matter. I think the fundamental argument was people in a loving relationship who want to raise children should be entitled to the exact same tax breaks, hospital visitation rights, and the rest as a heterosexual couple. We can have a much, much longer conversation. Right, and it's not necessary. By the way, the, the argument is over. The, exactly. the, right. So, so let's it, talk about. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. The reason that, that it's important is if liberals won't vote Republican because of same sex marriage, they're fighting a battle that has been won on their side. It's over. Mm-hmm. So why don't they fight the battle for the for America's soul, for America's freedom? That's my question to you. What stops liberals from voting Republican? Well, in the past. Two elections, it was a man named Donald Trump. No. I, I well, 
Okay, that's that's a debate I had. Even that, I don't I don't respect the view. Even though there are people I adore, like Brett Stephens, who hold that view, I don't believe that Donald thre- Donald Trump was nearly the threat to this country that the left is. I I still don't understand that view, and uh, I know you hold it, and I, I, I you're as big a puzzle to me as Brett. <laughs> no, I, I don't hold the view that. I think you can look at my actions and, frankly, the skin in the game that I've displayed to see what I think was the extent of the threat that I see from the left. Yes, I do. I, I and Listen, I opened up saying you are a rare it, – it's just right, as so rare in men and as in women. The idea, that I'm, the idea that I'm like a squish on that subject couldn't be further. No, you're not a squish. I, Only all – no, no. Right. Neither is Brett Stephens. Brett Stephens has courage. Okay. The, 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 so wait, so what, was I right in saying – oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I, I think it's a totally coherent position to say – we're living in a very unstable time, politically and otherwise, in which the center is not holding. And in a world in which the center is not holding, again, for any number of reasons that we could get into, um, there are forces rising, I would argue, on the far right and on the far left that are extremely dangerous to the American ideal um, and to... I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but like being able to live together without killing each other. All right, and hold that hold that point because I want to talk to you. I, I, you have three minutes to tell me who is far right that is dangerous. Dangerous, not existent. Dangerous. All right, everybody. I want to explain. We invited Barry Weiss to talk about her magnificent piece for City Journal on what's happening in the toniest of high schools uh, in in America, specifically California in this case. And I've been talking to her about the the macro issue of liberals not knowing what's threatening, but she is a liberal who does. She's not unique. She's rare. So that's the reason for the amount of time I devoted to that up. As soon as possible, I will have you on again. I'd like to have you on regularly. I have tremendous uh, respect for you. Uh, you. I just wanted to explain we we didn't uh, fool you <laughs> when inviting you to discuss <laughs> the article. I just wanted to make that clear. Uh, but I, I, I felt that intellectual honesty demanded that I, I address some of these subjects. Okay, so... If it's okay, oh, it's I, I mean, Dennis, my dad listens to you every day. I'm just having a conversation with another version of him and his arguments. The la- I guess the last thing I would say about it is, um, and I'd love to talk about the piece or whatever else, but it's your show, is that you know there's there's a tension between kind of staying inside of something and trying to change it from within and exit, right? There's that famous book, Exit Voice Loyalty, about it. And I guess there's a strategic question, like is the message to people, you know, peace out, just leave? Or is the message like, no, try and change it from within because we need a healthy Democratic Party like we need a healthy Republican Party? 
or maybe your view is accelerationism and just, you know, let it burn because in your view, it's, it's suicidal. Yes, that is my view. That's right. It is. is, It is. Listen, I I thank God for you. You know what? You being a Democrat and a liberal is of incredible value to me and to many of us who care about this country. I'll give you an example. An evangelical Christian, a very powerful one, said to me once, you know, Dennis, of course, we would we would love you to come to Christ. But to tell you the truth, you're far more valuable to us as a Jew. (laughs) It was so I would say to you, we'd love to have you come over uh, to a Republican Party, but you're much more valuable to us as a Democrat. (laughs) It's a truly it's a truly similar, not identical, but similar thing. So I'm not trying to make you a Republican. I'm. I'm t- I've given up on the Democratic Party. I think most liberals will not do a thing within it. Nothing. There's nothing they can do. They have to leave it, just like we have to leave our schools. The same fight, and that's this brings us to your article, the same fight I hear some conservatives say, no, 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 we have to stay in the schools and fight on school boards. You'll lose. It's a waste of time. The, the schools must collapse and be rebuilt as educational centers. That's my view. Your fantastic, unbelievably powerful article, which is up, by the way, folks, at DennisPrager.com, uh, is only a confirmation to me the schools have reached the state of hopelessness. Mm. Should I respond to that? Yes, please. <laughs> well, one of the reasons, and I, there's, it's actually incredible. Since I published that article, the amount of incoming that I've gotten, not just from other elite, you know, super expensive private schools, but from public school parents and charter school parents, it's like the floodgates have opened. So I'm, I'm excited to do a lot more on this incredibly important topic. But the reason that I wanted to start with the elite schools is, and this is a paradox that I keep encountering, not just with parents, but with lots of people, which is, the paradox kind of goes like this. The people that seem to possess the greatest ability to speak out against this illiberal ideology, and I think it doesn't, it needs a better branding. Neil Ferguson called it totalitarianism without a dictator that I sort of loved. But basically, the people that are the wealthy, the people that actually could afford to move to a different town to pull their kid out of the school and hire a private tutor, they are generally the most scared and the most closeted and the most quiet. And I keep finding over and over again that the people with the least insulation are the ones who are generally roaring the loudest. One very important example who I'm writing about today being this woman, Gabrielle Clark, a mother, biracial woman in Las Vegas until very recently, her and her children, she has five children, were living in transitional housing. And when her son was told basically to profess his privilege and his oppressor status in the um, public charter school democracy prep that he goes to in Las Vegas, he refused. And it was part of a graded assignment. And most parents would say, oh, just go along with it. You're a senior. You're about to go to college. You've worked so hard. We worked so hard to get you into this school to give you the opportunity. And instead, she said, no, this is a violation of my child's First Amendment rights and they're suing the school. And these people are working class. 
these are not people that can afford to go to another school. And I just find that paradox itself incredibly interesting. Um, and I found it so strange that these parents, you know, forgetting the few that I spoke to who are on financial aid, but these parents who actually do have privilege um, weren't using it and weren't, you know, weren't being the kind of example um, that they ostensibly would want to be setting for their children. And I just find that very strange. Affluence um, plus secularism equals cowardice. It's one of my many equations of life. Did you just come up with that? Yes, but I have a lot of others. I just came up with that one, yes. But I uh, they, uh, I have another one. A b- a boredom plus secularism uh, equals leftism. I don't know about that one, but the first one I think I agree with. I mean, the way that I've thought about it is, you know, to use the Buckley title, it's like people are worshiping Yale more than they're worshiping God, God or their That's right. soul. That's right. That's correct. And well, the, the, all, is, one of the things that all of these uh, folks have in common that you spoke to in your article, and by the way, I want my listeners to know, uh, I will be devoting next hour to reviewing your article. I, I have uh, marked it up tremendously. Uh, oh, the, so you're, you're free to tune in, uh, or at least your dad can <laughs> summarize it for you. <laughs> i got to go, I, I go interview more parents. I, uh, I, I want to tell you something that uh, you might find of interest that I, I told just uh, Thursday night. I had dinner with uh, with Dave Rubin and, and his husband, David. We're very close with them, and we, we had dinner there. And I mentioned to them a phenomenon that has uh, – I don't, I don't know why it is true, but it is true – a disproportionate number of the leading conservative intellectuals are Jews and gays. It, it's it, I don't know why it it it's uh, it's counterintuitive, but I just thought I would uh, have you put that in your pipe and smoke it, despite the fact that I smoke a pipe and you I don't. don't have a pipe. Right, I do, so I'll smoke it for you. I but think about that. Yeah. I, the thing I wanted to pick up on, Dennis, is what you were saying before, that courage comes from religion. And, you know, I don't think that, you know, what little courage that I have, 100% comes from Judaism. And it's not necessarily God, although I'm not an atheist, but from a sense of what my ancestors sacrificed so that I could have the ability to walk into the New York Times wearing a Jewish star around my neck and to walk out of the New York Times wearing a Jewish star around my neck. And that is profound. Like, that is the moving force in my life. And I think that one of the, and this is, I guess, for another conversation, but I really, really believe that having an anchor that is separate from politics that prevents what I really think of as idol worship, whether it's Trump or AOC, is extremely important. And I think it is one of the most pressing problems that we need to figure out a way to solve. Because I really think that people that have the anchor of community and religion and a sense of duty and obligation to something bigger than professional prestige or accomplishment um, or beating or owning or dunking on your enemies, 
are people that have a true North Star. That's and right. I see that in the people that. Well, as be- beautifully I, said. By the way, one life. other thing you're gonna you're gonna find in your great travels through life, you're gonna start liking conservatives as people. That's gonna really blow your mind. Barry Weiss, you're already there. God bless you. Barry Weiss's piece is up at DennisPrager.com.